and welcome to our latest Herbert Smith Free Hills on the Horizon podcast, where we discuss the most material upcoming developments in corporate law and regulation in the UK that we expect to see in the next six to 12 months. My name is Antonia Kirkby, and I'm joined today by my colleague Sarah Hawes, Isabel Hoyle and Erica MacDonald. Now, typically in these podcasts, we talk about things that are relevant to listed companies, but actually I think most, if not all of the areas we're going to talk about today will be of interest to all companies, both listed and unlisted. Uh, and Isabel, that brings me nicely on to you. Do you want to start with the reform of Companies House? I know we've talked about this in previous episodes. Do you want to give us a quick reminder and tell us where we've got to on that? Thanks, Antonia. So the reform of Companies House uh, is going to be implemented through changes to the Companies Act 2006. And it will turn the regulator into a far more active gatekeeper. These amendments to the 2006 Act are contained in the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, currently making its way through Parliament. The bill was first laid in Parliament September last year and is being debated in the House of Lords and is reaching the final stages of that Lords deliberation before it will head back to the House of Commons for final debate and royal assent. Whether that parliamentary journey will be completed before summer recess, I just don't know. There have been some pretty significant changes introduced to the bill on its way through, so it's hard to know how long this last part will take. I anticipate that it will become law later this year, though in order to give Companies House, and indeed companies, time to prepare for the reforms, we expect the provisions of the bill to be brought into force at a later date, possibly through a number of commencement orders. In terms of what the bill will do, as I said, it will transform the regulator and give Companies House greater powers in relation to the registry and also new powers to impose fines. It will also introduce new ID verification procedures for directors, PSCs and those filing with Companies House on behalf of companies. It's expected that one of the commencement orders will bring the provisions of the 2006 Act on the prohibition of corporate directors into force. And there's a host of other miscellaneous changes relating to registers and information filed at Companies House. I'll just touch on a couple of the changes that have been introduced to the bill in Parliament, though Sarah will cover some of uh, the more significant changes which relate to corporate crime. So the amendments uh, made relating to transparency include giving the government power to make regulations requiring any person carrying on business in the UK um, the obligation to report to Companies House uh, discrepancies between the information they obtain from a prospective customer and information made publicly available by Companies House. The government will also be given powers to make regulations requiring overseas companies which have a registered establishment or branch in the UK to supply a UK address for service and an email address to Companies House. Now, the form will be publicly available and needs to be what's termed under the bill an appropriate address. This is one where, in the ordinary course, a document addressed to the company and delivered there by hand or post would be expected to come to the attention of a person acting on behalf of the company and where delivery of documents is capable of being recorded by obtaining uh, an acknowledgement of delivery. So a standard PO box address where there's no acknowledgement facility just won't cut it. Further amendments were made in the House of Lords, uh, including, for example, a new duty on members to notify the company of the information which needs to be included on the register of members and the process uh, for obtaining that information and a sanction for a failure to provide that information when requested by the company. But as I said, the most significant changes were in relation to economic crime, which I understand that Sarah will cover. Thanks, Isabel. So, yes, Sarah, over to you, please. Can you talk us through some of the significant changes that we saw made to the bill when it was in the House of Lords, please? Yes, of course. Thanks, Antonia. 
So look, if you'll forgive me on this one, uh, rather than diving straight into what's on the horizon, I think we actually need to look back for a moment as to where this has all come from. Uh, corporate crime is not something that hopefully uh, troubles our usual listed company, corporate governance, company law focused audience. So I wouldn't expect that many people have been following this one closely. Now, as we all know, a company is a distinct legal entity from its owners, officers, members. It's a, a separate legal person. As such, companies themselves can be subject to both criminal and civil liabilities. Convictions of companies for criminal acts, though, make up a very small proportion of successful prosecutions. It's uh, less than 1% of total prosecutions a year on average. And many of those convictions which are successful are for absolute liability offences, so things like breaches of environmental or trading regulations, which have obviously been created with companies specifically in mind. Companies can, of course, commit other types of criminal offences, those with fault elements, the, the mens rea, if we go back to law school speak. But these, of course, have typically been created with natural persons in mind. So then the general rule of criminal liability, which is applied to companies in those circumstances, is the so-called identification doctrine. Now, this provides that a company would generally only be liable for the conduct of a person who had the, the status and the authority within that company to constitute the company's directing mind and will. Now, of course, there are exceptions to the application of this doctrine. Uh, for instance, uh, strict liability offences such as those under the UK Bribery Act. But I think we can all have some sympathy with the position that particularly in large, complex, multinational organisations, senior people who have got significant decision making powers in relation to substantial areas of the business, they're just not considered by the courts applying the identification doctrine necessarily to be significantly or sufficiently controlling to hold the company liable. Uh, therefore, in, back in November 2020, it was, uh, the Law Commission were asked by the government to review the law on corporate criminal liability. Now, in its terms of reference, the Law Commission was asked to consider the challenges faced by the criminal justice system under the current law, but also to avoid placing disproportionate burdens upon businesses. Then we get to June 2022. And the Law Commission publishes its options paper on potential reform of the UK's corporate criminal liability laws. Now, in its 260 plus page, very well written report, it presented at least 10 or, or up to 12, depending on how you count the various alternatives, um, but a number of options for reform. One option being simply retaining the identification principle as it is currently interpreted in light of recent case law. The other options, though, range from modifying the current identification principle for all offences to introducing new specific failure to prevent offences and also a number of civil options, including additional administrative monetary penalties or high court civil actions. Now, the government is planning to use the ECCT bill to implement two of the Law Commission's recommendations albeit that the Law Commission itself has recommended that a further, more detailed consultation on any of the options that the government preferred to be undertaken first. Now, the government's stated intention here is to make it easier to prosecute companies for certain economic crime offences, particularly those large companies 
with complex management structures. So if passed in the current draft form, uh, the ECCT bill will introduce a new failure to prevent fraud offence for corporates. Now, under this proposed new offence, an organisation will be strictly liable if a specified fraud offence is committed by an employee, an agent or a subsidiary, and that organisation did not have reasonable fraud prevention procedures in place. Now, a list of the specified fraud and false accounting offences for this new failure to prevent offence is set out in the legislation, and it includes just, for example, um, cheating the public revenue, false accounting and false statements made by company directors. Also in the legislation, the Secretary of State will be given power to amend that list of specified offences simply by regulations by statutory instrument. Now, this new failure to prevent fraud offence will apply to all large companies, large LLPs and large partnerships, including those incorporated outside the UK, if you've got a specified fraud offence committed here in the UK. And the offence will be punishable by an unlimited fine. The government is obliged under the legislation to issue statutory guidance on what amounts to reasonable prevention procedures. Now, those of you familiar with the UK Bribery Act strict liability offence for failure to prevent bribery can recognise that this is based on that model, although there are a number of important technical differences, which I'm, I'm not going to get into here. Now, in tandem with that new failure to prevent fraud offence, the government is also proposing to significantly reform the identification doctrine for certain economic crimes through the ECCT bill. Now, the bill is going to place the identification principle on a statutory footing for specified economic crimes, and it will impose criminal liability on body corporates and partnerships for economic crime offences committed by their senior managers. Senior managers there in air quotes. Uh, the proposed definition of senior manager in the bill replicates the definition that's already in the, the Corporate Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act. And what it does then is look at the senior manager's roles and responsibilities within the organisation rather than any particular job title. And it makes it clear that a person will be a senior manager within this definition if they play a significant role in the making of decisions about the whole or a substantial part of the activities of the relevant body corporate. Now, this new statutory attribution of liability test will apply only to specific economic crimes, again set out in a schedule to the legislation, and in addition to the common law offences of, of cheating the public revenue and conspiracy to defraud, these include things like fraudulent trading under the Companies Act, misleading statements and impressions under the Financial Services Act 2012, uh, theft, false accounting and false statements by directors under the Theft Act 68 and fraud under the Fraud Act 2006. And if convicted using this new statutory identification principle, again, a company could be subject to unlimited fine. And that will, of course, be in addition to any sentences imposed upon the individuals who are also found guilty of the same offences. Now, as Isabel's already said, you know, the bill's still being debated in the House of Lords and we expect it to become law at some point later this year. Now, while the provisions, including the new failure to prevent fraud offences and the reforms to identification doctrine are unlikely to be brought into force straight away, not least as the government is obliged to issue guidance on reasonable procedures to prevent fraud, 
Once the bill becomes an act, companies will need to start thinking about their fraud and other economic crime prevention procedures. Ultimately, these amendments, if enacted in their current form, will make it easier to bring prosecutions in some cases where it would not currently be possible. Now, the practical impacts will likely flow through over a number of years because obviously the changes will be prospective and complex fraud offences typically take a number of years to investigate and to prosecute. But I certainly think it's something that companies will need to start looking at quite carefully pretty soon after the bill becomes an act. Uh, that was all I was going to say on them to say today, Antonia. As I said, um, some pretty uh, complex technical issues to work through there. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, and that's obviously one that companies need to keep an eye out for, isn't it? As they need to put those procedures in place. Um, if we move away now from the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, Erica, can we come to you? Um, we've talked, I think, in previous podcasts about the proposals to overhaul a listing regime in London. We've seen another set of proposals out from the FCA. Do you want to talk us through what they're proposing now? Um, yes, thanks, Antonia. In May 2023, the FCA proposed a revolutionary restructuring of the UK listing regime in its consultation paper CP2310, um, in which it sets out effectively a blueprint for the new UK listing. Now, while the point of the rule changes is to attract more companies to list in London, they will have a significant impact on existing listed companies. Um, in a change uh, from the FCA's previously announced reform approach, as you alluded to, Antonia, the FCA has abandoned the idea of a split between mandatory and supplementary continuing obligations in favour of a true single segment with one set of continuing obligations for normal uh, commercial companies. So I just wanted to draw out one or two of the FCA's proposals as part of this new UK listing regime. Firstly, listed companies will no longer be required to get shareholder approval or prepare a circular for significant class one transactions. And also shareholder votes and circulars will no longer be required for related party transactions. Now, as far as the sponsors regime is concerned, the FCA has indicated that sponsors will remain a cornerstone of investor and market protection, but the regime will be modified and we expect further details um, on that in the autumn. There will also be significant changes to the eligibility requirements for new prospective uh, IPO candidates, moving to a disclosure-based rather than a rules-based regime. So if they can't meet certain eligibility requirements, they can explain why not in their IPO prospectus. And then it will be up to investors to decide whether or not to take the risk of investing. So the FCA has said that following this consultation, which closed on the 28th of June, uh, it expects to publish a second paper containing draft rules in the autumn and it plans to accelerate its final rulemaking process. Uh, so we expect... The new rules to be implemented in early 2024, but I should say that for existing listed companies, uh, transitional provisions will be made in due course. Now, we think that this is an important step towards improving the competitiveness of the UK market from a regulatory perspective. 
And it should make the UK a more attractive listing destination and also improve the competitiveness of UK listed companies in international M&A processes. But of course, challenges remain, in particular uh, with regards to the depth of liquidity, perceptions on valuation gaps, the extent and quality of research coverage and consistency of uh, investor appetite for IPOs in the UK especially from uh, UK investors. So these things uh, will also need to be addressed if the UK is to materially improve its competitive position as a listing venue. And then, of course, also the loss of established protections transactions will concern some investors. And if you take that together with the other relaxations on eligibility, which, as I said, are being modified to a disclosure-based approach, and the separate prospectus and secondary issuance reforms, which I'll come on to, but will effectively enable significant undocumented capital raises, all of this will decisively place the emphasis on investors to manage risk. So... The FCA will also need to have the powers and capacity to make sure that the new disclosure-based regime is adhered to, as well as deal with rule breaches, and ensure that the high standards of market conduct that attract investors to the London market are attained. So I guess all eyes will now turn to investors for their responses to the proposals, given that the FCA has gone down this radical route. Thank you, Erica. All very interesting. And and you mentioned there briefly, and do you want to talk us through in a bit more detail, the kind of pretty much associated reform of the prospectus regime? Where have we got to on that? Yeah, so May 2023 was actually quite a busy month for the FCA because they also published a series of engagement papers on the new prospectus and public office regime in the UK, as trailed by the government in uh, December 2022 as part of its Edinburgh reforms. Now, this is part of a new engagement and dialogue approach by the FCA ahead of their formal consultation process on uh, prospectus reform. So the responses to the engagement papers will inform the new prospectus rules that will be made by the FCA uh, using their new powers uh, granted to it under the um, Financial Services and Markets Act 2023, which has only recently received uh, royal assent. And so the FCA asks for responses to these questions raised by uh, the engagement papers by the end of September 2023. And then it will plan to consult on specific rule proposals in 2024. Now, turning to the four engagement papers themselves, uh, the first one is on admission to trading on a regulated market. And here the FCA says that the requirement for a prospectus on an IPO will remain and it will continue to need to contain that sufficient detail to meet the necessary information test. So it's asking for views on when exemptions to this requirement should um, apply um, and also on the required content and format of a prospectus in this context and of course on the responsibility for and approval of such a prospectus. The second engagement paper deals with further issuances of equity on regulated markets. So the FCA says uh, that there will be no requirement for a listed company to publish a prospectus when it issues further shares or equity securities unless there is a clear need for one. 
And in this engagement paper, it asks for views on where uh, whether there should be a threshold uh, set by reference to the percentage of existing share capital that the issuance represents. So, for example, offers over 75 percent of issued share capital. Um, so above that, a prospectus would be required. And then, of course, what document, if any, should be required if or where a prospectus itself is not required. And then the third engagement paper deals with protected forward-looking statements. And the FCA seeks views on how these protected forward-looking statements in prospectuses, which will be subject to the lower reckless liability standard, uh, should be defined. Um, the FCA is asking whether the uh, whether there should um, be certain minimum criteria for the production of protected forward-looking statements, how they should be presented and labelled in prospectuses, and also whether sustainability-related disclosures should be uh, protected forward-looking statements. And then finally, uh, with engagement paper four, the FCA is interested in views on where the current UK prospectus regime could be improved in the context of uh, wholesale debt capital markets. So in terms of next steps, as I said, responses are due back to the FCA by the end of September 2023, and then it will consult on specific rule proposals in 2024. Thank you, Erica. All very interesting. Lots of change coming down the tracks there for us. Um, so thank you, Erica, Sarah and Isabel for your thoughts today. And thank you too to our listeners. We hope you found this podcast helpful and we'd welcome any feedback you have on it. Um, if you want any further detail on any of these topics or indeed quite a few more, or you want to keep track of them as they develop, do go to our HSF Herbert Smith Freehills Corporate Notes blog. And you'll find on there, in addition to the things we've talked about today, information on the reform of the governance code. Now, we haven't talked about that in today's podcast because it's not in the next 12 months. So we've left that for a future episode, but we've got plenty of information on there if you want to look into it in the meantime. Otherwise, thank you very much for joining us today. And we look forward to speaking to you again in six months time when we give our next roundup. Thank you and goodbye.